On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, we want to move on to something completely different. We have, uh, a couple of times in the past few years, spoken to Brian Rowan, former security correspondent with the BBC in Northern Ireland. His last book was called Political Purgatory, and it was about the efforts that it took to get Stormont back up and running after its three-year suspension during the Cash for Ash scandal. Uh, Brian has a new book out called Living with Ghosts, the inside story from a troubled mind, something of a memoir of his own times uh, in covering the troubles. Uh, and Brian is within the line. Brian, thank you as ever for speaking to us. Um, I kind of wonder, first of all, uh, what prompted you to write these memoirs right now because one might argue that the story of the troubles will never be completely finished so you never know when to start but also that it's been so long thankfully since there was sustained armed conflict that maybe there was a time before now when you could have written memoirs so why now? Well we still don't have a legacy process we still don't have the process that's going to address the past and very often when I speak to people who have experience of the conflict period I tell them to write it down uh, so that it's there, if not for telling uh, right now, so that it's there for some time later in the future. So for a long time, I've been uh, thinking about when would be the right time to uh, produce something like this. Connor Graham at Marion Press uh, approached me last year after the political purgatory book that you've just mentioned, Gavin, asked me would I, would I do a second book, um, suggested to me I should write something of a memoir. I told him, uh, if it was called a memoir, I wouldn't write it. So um, okay, well, uh, my apologies it, it, for it, referring it, it, to for, it by that shorthand. Yeah, for 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 me, it's a it's a it's a it's a personal reflection of uh, the complexities of uh, the challenges of uh, reporting both a conflict period into a peace process. And what I'm trying to do in it, Gavin, is take people behind the news, what they didn't see, how some of these things uh, worked and adding some more information to to the knowledge uh, of that period. Um, one of the common themes, uh, common threads, excuse me, throughout the book is the the moral or the ethical mm. quandaries that you have in um, having the, the links that you did to paramilitaries on, on both sides of the conflict as well as security sources and mm. the difficulties that you had in, in receiving information from one and then being asked to hand it on to the other and some of those difficulties. In fact, it opens with uh, quite a striking image of you um, burning some of your notes yeah. after you knew that security mm. services were going to come looking for them. You might yeah. give us the, the pot of history of how you arrived at that point. Yeah, well, so the, so the information was never given to me to pass on to another organization. The, the information that was given to me was, was for news purposes. And, and what I had to do, uh, Gav, was try to establish contact with, with, with all of the various organizations. If you're going to report a conflict, you don't do it by talking to one side or by taking sides. And uh, I don't see our conflict. In, in, a, in a kind of two-sided frame. There, there were many sides. Um, it was very complex. Uh, the, the reference you make is to, to statements in the, uh, the late 1980s. Uh, the first statement I took from the IRA was the, the day after the Inniskillen bomb in 1987. Uh, but the, the, the fire I lit was, um, was, was, was a year later, uh, sometime into uh, 1988. There'd, there'd been a bomb in, uh, in Britain um, the, uh, a soldier had been killed. It was at the Mill Hill Barracks. It was in the uh, parliamentary constituency of Margaret Thatcher, who was then Prime Minister. Um, the police had a particular interest in this statement because uh, it was the first IRA attack in Britain since the, uh, the, the Brighton bombing when the IRA tried to, to wipe out the, uh, the Thatcher cabinet. So um, the police came looking for 
why I came to have it, um, uh, where I got it, how I got it. Uh, questions that uh, not so much that I could not answer, Gavin, but that I would not answer um, um, in terms of trying to uh, protect sources. Mm. So I suppose it was a moment of panic. Um, I, I lit a little, I lit a fire in the at the back of our house or, or the house that we were living in at that time um, in the 1980s, and 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 I burned a lot of statements. I suppose trying to burn the trail, if you like, but yeah. it was. It, it was one of those moments of panic and about not knowing what to do. And when you talk about ethics and, and, and morals and principles, you, you walk a very thin line when you report a conflict such as the conflict we had here, having to speak to multiple sides, never having and never wanting pre-knowledge, Gavin, of what was going to happen next, but speaking with people who knew exactly what had just happened and had no doubt, knowledge about what would happen next. So, mm. so it, it, it's that dilemma. And, and, and the more you, you speak with, with those organizations, the thinner that line becomes mm. in terms of trying to keep yourself on the right side of it. Yeah, um, I mean, you and I, uh, as journalists, uh, and hopefully all listeners would understand that we, we treat the idea of um, the, the privacy and confidentiality of our sources mm. as being sacrosanct, that, that under no circumstance, if someone ever asks you to reveal a source, mm. you, you just don't do it because right. you are of no value as a journalist if you're just going to betray the people who give you information. And that's mm-hmm. that's reasonable. But it does become a very difficult ethical point. And I think you've already hit the nail on the head when some of those sources are armed paramilitaries where you know that they are responsible in the past and are going to be responsible again in the future for indefensible atrocities. And I wonder, was it an ongoing ethical problem that you wrestled with throughout your time well, covering the I, conflict? I, I suppose, Gavin, in actual time, you've got so many other distractions. You're working in a blizzard. Um, in that period of the uh, late 1980s into the early 1990s when we had the Loyalist surge, um, I was dealing with those organizations on a on a very regular basis, sometimes within a very short space of time of of killings happening. And in actual time, I think news is a distraction. Um, you, you, you've, you've, you've got so many other things to, to think about in actual time. I mean, I often say to people that people here died for a couple of hours. Someone was dead on the lunchtime news. Someone else was, was dead on the tea time news. And someone who had just been remembered was very quickly forgotten. Uh, we became numb in the conflict uh, period. People get used to war. Um, the abnormal becomes normal. And people became na- uh, numbers and they became news. You know, the, the tenth person killed one week or the, the ninth person killed the following week. So then I-, I think it's only when you step out of the conflict period and you have proper time for reflection uh, that you think much more about mm. it then. And that's what I've done. I've pressed the rewind button into those into those days to think again about uh, how I operated, what I got right, what I got wrong, what I could have done better. Did I think enough? Mm. And um, and and that's the thinking um, of of now, uh, Gavin, which takes me back into that uh, that period of some years ago. So, how long after? Um Good Friday being being reached and and before thankfully the large uh, end of of large scale hostilities and violence. How long after or before that point do you then start to realise that you've been walking this kind of ethical tightrope all along? Yeah, well, I left the BBC in in 2005, uh, the year the IRA ended its armed campaign, 
I, I knew probably for a couple of years before then uh, that I needed to get away from it. Um, you carry heavy weight when you report a conflict period because of some of the things that we've just talked about. Peace is also a huge challenge. And there were many dilemmas in the, in the evolving peace process. I knew on occasion uh, when I was reporting, when I was in the BBC studio or on the radio or on television, that I was saying things that, that, that were going to, to damage the peace process because everyone tries to control the narrative um, in, in such a process. It's about what's good for peace. Uh, my job was to report it as I knew it, and there was a, you, you know, a particular period of pressure in 1999 when the British government persuaded David Trimble to enter government uh, on the logic that if he did so, the IRA would decommission weapons. And the IRA told me uh, they were not about to decommission weapons. So I was saying that um, on, on radio, saying it on television, getting called by the Northern Ireland office at that time, pretty much after um, every interview I did, that I was wrong, I was overstating my knowledge, I should reserve judgment. And of course, we get to the deadline for decommissioning. It doesn't happen. Stormont collapses in mm. 2000. No one rings me to say that your assessment is right. But but when I talk about ghosts in the book, um, uh, Gav, you know, I, there's a chapter there, uh, you know, where I talk about the IRA killing three of their own people on the border. Uh, uh, me with, with, with some others from uh, the various media outlets coming across two of those bodies. Then, then me the next day being taken away by the IRA with my eyes taped with goggles on, my colleague Yemen Mali with me being brought to a house where there were men in balaclavas, the, the, the statement of the IRA um, on, a, on a long sheet of toilet paper so that it could be flushed um, if the house was raided, having to write that down, the tape and goggles off our eyes, obviously, at that stage, then mm. the tape and goggles back on, being dropped off where we were picked up, got back to the BBC, and there was a bit of an earthquake in that moment because I think the penny was dropping about what we were being asked to do, and I was offered some counselling at that stage. Um, uh, Gav and I, I, I declined probably in 1992, thinking it would suggest there was something wrong with me. But of course there was something wrong. Yeah. How could there not be something wrong? And, it, you know, I thought when I wrote this book that um, I was ready to talk about pretty much everything. And I was speaking at an event in, uh, in Bally Castle on Friday evening. Someone asked me um, that I regret not taking the counselling in 1992. And as I started to answer the question, I found myself not being able to speak. I ended up in a mess, um, struggling with words. Um, it, it probably was no more than a minute or so, but it felt like a lifetime. Sure. And, you know, I was chatting to my wife afterwards. Val has a long uh, work period in mental health. She said to me, you know, it wasn't so much the question about that you regret not taking the counselling, but it was more... What was the counselling about? It was about what we experienced. Mm. So that tsunami of thought probably went through my head uh, at that same time. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just, you, you know, what I might think, uh, and you asked me at the beginning, why now? I might think I'm, I'm in a better place now um, to, to say some more about what I reported, who I met, you, you know, not by individual names, mm. but how all of those processes worked. But are we ever ready to fully discuss all of this um, in a very public way on Friday evening? Yeah, uh, I find that I'm not. I'm not yet in that place. Um, 
Uh, which I suppose then the, the answer to, suppose, to the first question is that if not now, then when? Because you, you have to sort of deal with one of these things, even if yeah. it's never going to be a comfortable time or there's never well, a convenient well, scheduling for it. Um, what I would say to you, Gav, is that this book is not all the story. I will leave all of the story somewhere for some time further down the road. But we have lost so much of the critical memory of the conflict period. Mm. You know, there's a line in the book that it's time to sit down with the truth that is still with us. And that's what I think we need to do. Um uh, I'm, I'm struck actually that I'm asking this question just while Sky News in the corner of the screen is again showing us the footage of Michelle O'Neill, the, the first minister in waiting, shaking hands with, with King Charles III in Hillsborough earlier this week. Um, there was, and I'm sure this won't be news to you, but just to remind our listeners that there was opinion polling taken not long after the Good Friday Agreement where the vast majority of nationalist responders uh, believed that for all of the, the faults about how they were treated and some of the ways in which they were slighted by the powers that be over the previous decades, that they still did not believe that armed conflict was necessary or that paramilitary violence was justified, that there would always have been uh, better ways to pursue um, the vindication of their cause. And there are more recent polls which show that now many nationalists don't believe that was the case, that they believe that there was, at some level, a justification or a rationale for for violence. Um, What would be your reflection on that or what does it tell us about the way in which our recollection of history has been clouded, that people didn't think at the time there was justification for violence and now they do? Well, my view is that we need to take the process that begins to address those questions that you have to ask, Gav, outside of us. We are too small a place. We all have uh, an emotional attachment to, to what happened here, what's still happening here. We're all stitched into the fabric of this place. And we've tried now for the best part of 15 years to create a legacy process uh, to uh, address some of the questions you've just asked, and we haven't been able to do it. They fall, these processes fall every time. I think the report, the report which is the report of the 50 years of, of, of conflict uh, and, and, and peace that, that, that we're talking about in this, in this phase, should be written by an international team that comes here and speaks with every side to the conflict. The IRA, the loyalists, military police, intelligence, special branch, those in government, those in politics. And that that report should be written with pens free of emotional ink. We are never going to have an agreed truth here. We're never going to have an absolute truth here. Uh, Not from, from one side, never mind all of the sides. We will get a redacted, managed, controlled version of truth from all of the sides. But I think it is only with an international team sitting down face-to-face with all of those groups, working out what a truth process might look like, and then telling us publicly what it's going to look like, not just what will be said, but what won't be Mm. said. And we then decide whether that's the road we want to go. The UK government is moving a legacy bill at the moment. As I look at it, it's not about addressing the past, it's about avoiding the past. It's about building a house that no one's going to buy and then shutting this process down in a couple of years. We can do better than that, Gav. But I think that has to be done by an international team. And then I think some place of proper remembrance has to be imagined from outside of politics. And I talk about Colin Davidson, uh, the artist Colin Davidson's exhibition, Silent Testament. Over 100,000 people visited it in the Ulster Museum. Someone like Colin Davidson could imagine a place of remembrance where we put the past to rest 
And then I think, and this is the most important thing, I think, then we of the conflict generation need to let go. We need to give the future generation the chance to shape the what next. And rather than do that at the moment, what the conflict generation is doing is holding on to the past, holding on to the ceasefire period, the political agreement, as if they own it. It's time to start thinking about 2032 and 2042 and not 1972 and not 1982. Okay. Uh, The book is called Living with Ghosts, The Inside Story from a Troubled Mind. It's about uh, Brian's uh, time into his his nightmares of remembering times he'll never forget and the deeply personal account of one man's doubts and decisions. Um, If you don't mind me saying, because it's it's such difficult subject material, um, it's a fabulous book and I found it very difficult to put down because you tell the story very compellingly. Uh, It's out by Mary, uh, published by Mary Impress and it's out now. Brian Rowan, thank you very much for joining us this lunchtime on The Record. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.